This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, everyone, uh, and welcome to the Global Impacts of COVID-19 webinar series. My name is Wendy Hunter-Barker, Assistant Dean here at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. Before diving into today's topic, we'll have our short segment on getting to know GPS. Today, I thought I'd talk a little bit about our research centers. As I mentioned last week, we have 12 excellent research centers here at GPS. You can see that they span a range of topics. Some have a regional focus, like our 21st Century China Center, the Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies, the Japan Forum for Innovation and Technology, and the Korea-Pacific Program. Others focus on environmental and sustainability issues, others still on the interplay of global economics and politics, and some focus on security and global governance. A couple of our centers have transformed their in-person events into webinar series, and I encourage you to check out their websites for more information. Of course, as the Assistant Dean of Academic Programs, I am legally bound to show you this slide of our degree programs and remind you that GPS is still accepting applications for fall 2020. All right, now onto the main event. Today's webinar, we was discussing the global economy and we are fortunate to have with us three amazing individuals. So with that, Renee, please take it away. Thanks, Wendy. Um, I'm very pleased to be with everyone today. Uh, the three amazing individuals, uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to be included in that number, um, would be myself, Professor Renee Bowen. Uh, I'm, the, uh, I'm a professor of economics at UCSD and GPS and the director for the Center of Commerce and Diplomacy. Uh, I've been uh, a professor at UCSD for the last three years, uh, and at UCSD I teach uh, international economics. Uh, my uh, co-panelist today uh, first is a former colleague of mine, Gordon Hansen, um, and it's unfortunate that he's former, but uh, he's moved on to the Kennedy School where he's now the Peter Wertheim Professor in Urban Policy. Um, and uh, Gordon, of course, has a very long CV, uh, great accomplishments um, in research. He's a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Uh, he's a lifetime member at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, his PhD is from MIT, uh, and he has a bachelor's degree from Occidental College uh, from 1986. So um, Gordon's been around the block. He might look young, uh, but uh, he's, uh, he's been around for a while. Uh, some of Gordon's most famous work is really highlighting the impacts of uh, Chinese-U.S. Uh, trade on uh, domestic uh, labor markets. So uh, this should be a very exciting discussion. Uh, Bob, uh, is, Bob Hormatz is managing partner of Tiedman Advisors, uh, a New York financial firm uh, that he recently joined. And his previous position was vice chairman of Kissinger Associates. 
Uh, he served as Undersecretary of State uh, for Economic Growth, Energy and, uh, and Environment under the Obama administration. Uh, and prior to that, uh, for 25 years, uh, he was in several leadership positions at Goldman Sachs uh, and uh, various financial institutions. Uh, so uh, Bob comes to us with a wealth of experience. Uh, he's also been very much involved uh, with uh, the School of Global Policy and Strategy uh, and is someone who's sort of got his finger on the pulse. So we're, we're very excited about what Bob uh, will uh, share with us today. Um, so. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're so welcome. Uh, we all have Wendy to thank for inviting us. Um, so uh, what we plan to do today is I'll kick things off uh, with just a, a few uh, bits of data and things that I've been thinking about uh, observing um, the events with COVID-19 and the global economy. Uh, and then I'll hand it over to Gordon uh, to speak for a few minutes, uh, and then Bob will speak for a few minutes, and then we'll open it up uh, to some questions. Um, so uh, without further ado, I'll just uh, share my screen and dive right in. Um, okay, so uh, what I'd like to talk about over the next 10 minutes or so are really three points. Uh, the first is that uh, the global recession uh, that we're about to witness is possibly uh, worse than anything we've seen since the Great Depression. Um, that uh, sounds very uh, ominous, uh, but hopefully by the end of this, I'll convince you that there is sort of a way forward. Uh, uh, and the second point I'll mention is the, the supply side matter. So what is going on uh, in terms of uh, reduction in supply through the through the disruption of global supply chains will matter a great deal uh, for how this global recession unfolds. Um, and uh, finally, the politics matters. So how we think about uh, domestic issues is going to matter just as much as how we think about uh, global issues. Uh, so diving right in, um, I just wanted to, uh, if you haven't seen this yet, uh, the IMF has put out their annual report uh, and uh, this got reported on in the Wall Street Journal, so I'm uh, copying a little bit from uh, what's there. Uh, but according to the IMF, uh, this uh, financial crisis, uh, uh, as a result of the financial crisis in the United States, uh, it's likely to contract uh, by 11% in the year 2020, and that's just the United States. Uh, as a result of uh, this contraction, uh, global trade is likely uh, to experience similar uh, contraction. Uh, and so, sorry, I said the 11% number, that's for global trade um, uh, that the IMF is predicting. Uh, but, uh, but as far as uh, I can tell, this is likely to be an underestimate of uh, the contraction. So if you look at this uh, figure, uh, also from the IMF, uh, in uh, the, uh, the quarters that we can uh, report on in 2020, um, GDP has contracted by 3%. Um, and that's in comparison to what happened in the Great Recession, uh, GDP contracted by uh, something of the order of 0.1%. Uh, so the contraction in GDP uh, for the United States uh, is much more significant than it was uh, for the Great Recession. And so what we're looking at is a contraction that looks something closer to the Great Depression. 
so this is uh, a figure from uh, Baldwin. Uh, it's not quite 2009, it should be 2019, uh, actually 2020. Um, and so what we're looking at is uh, the contraction of uh, imports uh, sorry, this is 2009, um, uh, as a result of the Great Depression, uh, Great Recession, sorry. And that was a contraction of 15% uh, over previous uh, levels. Uh, so if you're sort of thinking, extrapolating that to what's happening now, contraction in uh, the Great Recession of trade of 15% uh, when uh, uh, global GD, uh, US GDP only contracted 0.1%, uh, uh, you're really looking at very large numbers of contraction in global trade. Um, and this could be 20%, it could be more. Um, so uh, what's sort of driving a lot of the contraction is the supply side. Uh, so uh, not only has the demand side been disrupted, uh, people are losing incomes, their uh, buying power is down, uh, but clearly uh, the fact that we've had to do these social, distances, so social distancing measures has disrupted supply chains. And so I've taken this little graphic that I, I like quite a bit uh, from a study from Richard Baldwin. Uh, and uh, in the red line at the top, apologies, uh, is really looking at uh, the epidemiological curve that we are trying to reduce with our containment policies, uh, shifting it to the blue curve. Uh, but the lower curves, uh, the dotted lines, are really saying how uh, the containment policies are affecting GDP. And you can see that steep drop off with most severe um, uh, impacts, uh, but these have been mitigated with some economic policies. So a lot of the stimulus that we've been seeing uh, has clearly uh, uh, been beneficial, but it's to be seen really how the stimulus uh, feeds into the economy. So what I want to highlight is that the stimulus is getting money into folks' hands, but the stimulus can't help supply chains and they can't help get goods moving again. And so uh, what's really uh, at issue is how do we get goods from point A to point B? And that's what's really going to impact global trade. So again, just sort of thinking about uh, the economy and how it works, again, stealing this from Richard Baldwin, which I, th I thought it's a great graphic. Uh, we really want to think about these households and the stimulus is helping the households to get this uh, money in their hands. Uh, it's helping small businesses stay open, which, you know, uh, gets wages into the hands of the households. But the other part of the story is these goods and services and, and how they're able to flow through the economy. And that's what uh, hasn't uh, yet been addressed. Uh, but um, uh, businesses are working on these things. One bright spot. Uh, is the sort of supply that has not been disrupted, in fact, has probably seen a boost, is services. And as we know, the U.S. economy in particular uh, has been increasingly reliant on services trade. Uh, so as uh, we're still able to uh, do things like Zoom meetings and still provide educational services, still provide financial services, uh, we're going to see a growth in financial ser in, in services in general that can be uh, can still be supplied uh, without um, the physical proximity. Uh, but we're going to see that reduction in uh, goods, uh, physical goods trade. Um, 
So uh, with all this uh, doom and gloom, more doom and gloom, shipments are down uh, 20%, 30%. What is sort of the bright spot? What's the way forward? Okay, so this is where we get to the politics. Now, uh, prior to COVID-19, there was already a very robust discussion about how we can start uh, restructuring or redesigning the global economy uh, to, to uh, take into account inequities. Um, and uh, again, here, this is a, a graphic I really like. Uh, this is coming from LAMP 2020. Uh, so as far as globalization went, there were sort of three prevailing narratives. Um, and uh, the, these are not my words, uh, but the first narrative is what LAMP calls the Trump narrative, uh, which is essentially pitting labor against capital and uh, looking at uh, globalization as essentially uh, jobs being stolen. And that narrative has some appeal because certainly uh, people feel their jobs being stolen. Uh, Now that's in contrast to the establishment narrative and he describes establishment narrative as essentially what we teach in economics uh, and international economics, uh, which is that uh, uh, essentially uh, trade uh, and trade agreements are great. Uh, They help to uh, uh, ensure efficiency of production and location of production and all boats should rise. But we know uh, by now, and this is what they call the critical narrative, uh, that that's not the only part of Uh, And a big part of what's missing uh, is these mobilization costs, right? So we haven't really uh, factored in how we can get uh, labor moving from one industry to another and minimize these impacts uh, of globalization. And until we really uh, get a handle on that uh, across countries, we're still going to be facing a lot of backlash against globalization, which is unfortunate because uh, exactly now is the time we need globalization to help uh, the global economy recover from the impacts of uh, COVID-19. So I'm going to just leave it there and I'm going to pass it on to Gordon, uh, who has done lots of uh, great work uh, on thinking about impacts uh, of labor markets, um, and I will allow him to take it away. Uh, we need you to unmute, Gordon. Yes, um, having been around the block doesn't mean I know how to use Zoom yet. So uh, well, the pitfalls of age. Um, uh, thanks very much, Renee, and thanks to Wendy for organizing this event. It's really a pleasure to be here with the GPS community and the UCSD community, uh, two groups of people who are uh, will always be near and dear to my heart. Uh, I want to do three things in in my brief remarks. One is to talk about what the plunge in global GDP is going to mean for some specific aspects of trade and which workers are going to be most adversely impacted by those changes. Second is to talk about the COVID-specific elements of that GDP contraction and how that will have some add-on effects to disrupting global economic activity. And then third, to close with what policymakers can do and what we want to see them doing in order to mitigate the impacts of this unprecedented crisis. First, as Renee outlined very very nicely, we are witnessing a dramatic decline in GDP in the United States, in many countries around the world, and as we sum it all up in the world as a whole. The IMF had predicted that US GDP would contract this year around uh, 5%. What we've already seen is a close to 5% contraction in the second, uh, in um, uh, quarter number one, 
as we go into quarter number two, which is happening right now, that number will almost certainly be much larger. And it's really hard to anticipate a rebound in quarters three and four that would bring us to what seemed like a dire prediction of the IMF of a 5%, 5% contraction. We're looking at something pretty incredible in terms of a, a downturn in economic activity this year, probably closer to 8, eight to 10% um, than 5 to 6%. So when GDP contracts, uh, it has a bullwhip effects on trade. And that, that's because much of trade is in economic activity that is cyclical in terms of its demand. When we think about trade in goods, about 80% of trading goods takes the form of manufacturers. And of those manufacturers, about two thirds are goods that are durable or that are used in construction uh, with both those categories broadly defined. Those are two sectors that are hammered when the economy turns down. What do we do when times get tight? We stop buying cars, we stop buying big screen TVs, we stop buying major appliances, and we stop buying homes. So that, that has a direct impact on a change, the change in demand for, for manufacturing goods and for durable manufacturing goods in particular. And so for workers employed in those sectors, that means layoffs and that means a slow return to work uh, over time. Because manufacturing tends to be pretty geographically concentrated in different countries, in the US in particular, and in most countries in the world, what that means is the economic pain from that coming uh, 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 employment-induced contraction from, from COVID via the decline in GDP and trade is going to be pretty concentrated spatially. Those impacts we haven't really seen yet. What we've seen is the first-line impacts of the reduction in activity from the shutdown. What we're going to see in the next round are these attendant effects coming from the declining global economic activity. There's some knock-on effects uh, which are going to affect particular types of economies uh, acutely. That is, uh, firms are delaying investment activities. So there's a reduction in foreign direct investment. This means reduced construction activity in lots of countries that were enjoying foreign direct investment inflows up to this moment in time. Many countries that rely on remittances from workers they've sent abroad to work in construction, uh, in household services, are seeing a decline in their incomes. And so uh, a decline in the income going back to those countries. In El Salvador and uh, Honduras, for example, 20% of GDP comes from remittances. Those are examples of countries that are going to see a substantial decline in GDP coming from uh, reduction in activity. Um, what we also see in times of crisis, as the present one, is a flight to safety when it comes to global investors. And a flight to safety means typically uh, people gobbling up dollar-denominated assets and treasury bills in particular, and that capital flight puts pressures on uh, currencies and foreign exchange reserves in many emerging economies. Now, there's some particular uh, aspects uh, of this downturn in GDP coming from the crisis that are specific to COVID, that are different from what we've seen before. One is that uh, COVID complicates the business of global trade. That's because trade involves people involved in physically moving goods between countries. And importantly, and this is a feature we, you know, we, we all know and understand, but we don't think about it that much. And that is that international travel is essential for the business of conducting trade. What we've done is massively disrupt global travel and that means fewer deals are getting done. And that means shipments that would have normally happened three, six, nine months in the future, aren't those deals are not getting consummated now. And that means this downturn has legs 
even under the most optimistic uh, scenarios. Um, also acutely related to COVID is a downturn in global tourism. And there are many small economies that are highly dependent on tourism for revenue. So we think about the Caribbean, we think about certain countries in Central America, Costa Rica, prime among them. You think about South Pacific and you think about uh, certain parts of Southeast Asia as being uh, Thailand included, parts of the Indonesian archipelago as being heavily reliant on, on, uh, on, on tourist revenues. Um, Finally, when it comes to the COVID-specific aspects of, of disruption to global trade, we're going to have renews, renewed calls for protectionism. Uh, when you experience an unprecedented downturn, there is a tendency to protect your own. That strengthens elements who want to say we need to preserve jobs by shutting off imports and engage in the sort of beggar thy neighbor policies that we've seen uh, appear during times of, of economic disruption going back um, uh, to the Great Depression uh, and before. So in this environment, uh, what can policymakers do? So in particular, when we think about the countries that GPS cares about uh, uh, and has focused a great deal of, of energy in trying to understand the economies of Latin America and Asia, we need to be concerned about the provision of liquidity to countries that uh, in general have perfectly good business models that under that underlie their engagement in the global economy, but are, are suffering from capital flight during this uh, attempt by investors to find safety in their holdings. And, um, and what, what we've seen here is a pretty good response from policymakers. U.S. Federal Reserve Bank is providing dollar swaps to, to certain central banks. The IMF has uh, quite uh, quickly put together $1 trillion in uh, emergency lending facility that helps provide that liquidity into the global economic system. Second thing that policymakers need to do is to do their utmost to, to sustain consumption and investment spending during what is an uh, essentially an intentional reduction in employment. And that is to get households and businesses to behave as close as possible as though these were normal times. Normal times, they are not. And households are cutting back spending, businesses cutting back spending. But through what we've, the U.S. has been doing with the payroll, payroll protection program and expanded unemployment insurance, those are kind of the right things that need to be done. Unfortunately, those efforts uh, are incomplete. Um, some of the money goes to the wrong folks. And they're kind of isolated to higher income countries. In many emerging economies, we aren't seeing countries that have the fiscal capacity to provide that same sort of protection. Uh, and that means that these intentional reductions in employment are gonna lead uh, to immediate economic uh, hardship. Um, so that's where entities like the IMF and the World Bank can step in with unusual provision of resources for relief at, so that we try and get through round one of the crisis. Finally, um, something that policymakers can be doing is trying to manage uncertainty in the global economy. If households and firms feel like the world is gonna fall apart, they're going to stop spending. Uh, animal spirits in Keynes' terms will take a, a dramatic turn for the worse. What we want policymakers to be doing is communicating the need to stand together, to do what we can to keep the economy afloat and to create uh, a clear path forward in terms of how we reactivate the economy and how we uh, deal with the interim while we're waiting for a vaccine, while we're waiting for expanded uh, testing. Um, 
Here we have to say that the, um, the performance of policymakers is decidedly mixed. Uh, we've seen uh, some governors and some um, prime ministers be very uh, uh, showing uh, uh, Churchill style resoluteness uh, in communicating what we all need to be doing as, as national and global citizens to get through this, this moment in time. And we've seen um, other policymakers uh, go from one solution to another solution, trying to shirk off responsibility and that, or just denying the seriousness of the crisis. And this is, um, has happened in, uh, to a certain extent in the United States. It's happened in Brazil. It happened in Mexico for a while, although things seem to, uh, to, to have been improved. Uh, increasing uncertainty is just shooting ourselves in the, uh, in the foot. That's an own goal that we really can't afford uh, to be making right now. So on the policymaking front, we're getting about half of it right. Um, there's a lot more we can be doing. And, and hopefully as our, our minds will be turned to the task, as we see the economic ramifications of this crisis start to play out uh, in terms of their grave impacts uh, in the coming months. Thanks very much. Uh, I will turn things over to Bob to close us off. Well, thank you very much. Uh, both superb presentations. I'm sorry I was darting back and forth. I've got two computers going here and we were doing something with the EU is having a meeting of their finance ministers or their deputy finance ministers. So they wanted me to chip in for a few minutes. So I wanted to end that before coming here. But in any case, it, it illustrates the point uh, that both of you had made. So let me, let me try to sort of underscore a few elements of this. And that is um, the, on, first on the supply side, one of the, complicating elements here is that the, the whole, and I'll get to this in a little bit more detail in a few minutes, but the notion of this seamless global supply chain system or demand supply chain system that we had envisaged perhaps as late as maybe 10 years ago is now has now been dealt a very severe blow by this. And that is that the, the notion of nationalism, economic nationalism, trade nationalism, healthcare nationalism, um, and a variety of other nationalisms, I think are going to be a major uh, concern that we're going to have over the next several years because the, 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 we're, we're so, um, we've been used to being uh, so heavily dependent on one or two countries for large amounts of our pharmaceuticals, particularly antibiotics. Um, we've been used to, in the technology area, depending very heavily on a couple of countries, China being the major one for very important elements of our technology. And I think this notion of global interdependence and particularly concentrated supply chain dependence is going to take an enormous hit as a result of this. Now, what, is that, what does that mean? It means um, either, and it will mean a combination of things, one is greater diversification of supply chains, but there are only a few countries that can play as robust a role in the global supply chain system for the United States and for Europe as China. So, the, and, and the interesting thing that we have going with China is that we definitely need, and I think this is where there's a contradiction in the way we deal with issues going forward, geopolitical and geoeconomic, we, we desperately need 
closer interaction between China and the US on early warning systems for pandemics. We need more cooperation on climate issues. We need more collaboration among American and Chinese scientists in finding um, treatments for this uh, pandemic and for those of the future in developing new drugs, new therapies, near Im new immunization techniques. Um, China has two or three uh, very active programs in, in, in drugs. Um, these are that are actually moving ahead quite rapidly that they're sharing with and interacting with American scientists on. So on one hand, there's going to be more trade uh, and supply chain nationalism. On the other hand, there needs to be, desperately needs to be, a great deal more collaboration among scientists to exchange information and particularly to ensure high levels of transparency. Uh, that has been, if you look at the way this crisis has been managed, the lack of transparency or the slowness of transparency has been one key aspect of, of the problem. So in order to have that, you need very good communication on the, among the scientific community uh, leaders. And you, but on the other hand, if you're having more nationalistic disputes over trade um, and over other geopolitical issues, it strikes me as a balance that's going to be extremely difficult to achieve but a necessary one. It can't be disengagement on all fronts. There are some fronts where active, proactive, anticipatory engagement is critically important. So that's one issue, one dilemma, one policy issue that's going to have to be uh, investigated and thought about in a, in a, in a serious way uh, going forward. The, the question of recovery or normalization is, unlikely, and Gordon made this point, it is unlikely that you're going to have anything close to normalization prior to uh, a either a vaccination, some kind of immunization, um, or a very quick and easy um, treatment, like taking a pill. Um, but the current drugs that are now underway for treatment purposes that are that are being experimented, monoclonal antibodies, for instance, which is a promising treatment. We've used it for other things. These things involve they're intravenous primarily. So they're not they're not exactly popping a pill and you'll be cured. And I think as long as that level of uncertainty exists about the disease and whether it can come back and whether you having had it are immune to getting it again, these are all issues scientists are are grappling with. I'm, I was on the board, two boards of biotech companies, and we had a meeting this morning among experts, far more expert than I, I assure you, on this on this question. And they were questioning whether if you get the disease, um, can you get it again? Um, and um, which makes a big difference in terms of the normalization process. But the bigger issue simply simply is that that it's going to be very hard to have people comfortable with going back to their jobs if there is even a small chance, smaller than now, but small chance of getting th this disease because particularly for older people, but not just for older people. So that level of psychological uncertainty 
about going to factories, and you've seen outbreaks in major factories, about going up an elevator in a 30-story office building, um, about going to restaurants, all these, you know, going to uh, theaters, all these things are going to be major inhibiting factors so that one can say, well, stores should open, everything should open. Whether people are going to, in effect, take advantage of it and to what degree, that is a very substantial question. The, the Federal Reserve has, in effect, created by most estimates, an, an extra trillion dollars worth of available money for spending. Uh, this is basically Fed's not so much official numbers, but when you add up what they've done and not done, most of their money is is to keep things stable and prevent companies from going under. But there, there's a lot of, of, of money transferred to people who are at the moment largely not spending it, or if they're spending it, they're spending it just to survive. Um, but even if it's half a trillion, the number isn't the important thing. The real question is, you can have this liquidity available, um, but are you, going to, are you going to go out there and spend it? What are you going to be doing um, with the money that you've got, whatever amount it is? Because people are going to be extremely cautious about spending on a wide range of things. Even if you can afford a car, even if you've got plenty of money to buy a car, you're going to say to yourself, and most people are going to say to themselves, look, this is still a very tenuous environment, and I'm going to be very cautious about spending money. I'm going to be uh, keeping my money in my pocket or bank account or or my saving or my investment accounts. Which brings me to the third point, and that is, I think one of the long-term byproducts of this is that interest rates are going to stay very low for a very long period of time, a very long period of time. The reason is that so many of the programs in, in the United States and in Western Europe, um, which actually is putting collectively more money into their economies than the US. We don't hear much about that, but the Europeans on the call I was on assured me that the numbers is three so far uh, larger. This is uh, through central bank and, and uh, treasuries of, of various sorts. So, but the idea behind this is everything is leveraged now to borrowing, including government borrowing, to a almost zero interest rate. You know, if you're if you're the government's borrowing, the government can can afford to borrow more and more if it's paying in effect zero interest and negative real interest. Um, so the the central bank and, and a lot of companies who are taking a lot of these loans and individuals who are taking a lot of these loans are taking them at extraordinarily low interest rates. So um, and the and the yield on treasuries and the yield on many uh, financial uh, fixed income financial assets, particularly the most secure of those assets, has gone down. The so so what happens? Two things happen. One is with everyone so leveraged to zero interest rate borrowing, when rates start going up, it will slow the economy because of the pervasiveness of this. It'll slow the economy very quickly, or at least it, people will be arguing, look, we borrowed it at almost nothing. Now we're going to have to pay you know, 100 basis points, or a percentage point 
or, or more, um, the pressure is going to be by the federal government because of its debt servicing obligations, by municipalities, which I'll get to in a moment, um, by municipalities who are going to be having to borrow a lot more money, by companies, they're going to say, look, we can't afford because of all we borrow to pay higher rates. So you, the Fed, have to keep rates down. And this is not just true in the United States, it's true in, in Western Europe and other countries as well. The, the other side of that coin is that savers, particularly retirees and cautious savers who save in their bank accounts or buy treasuries or their 401ks, they're 75 years old, therefore they didn't want to put stocks in, in their 401ks, which turned out to be an advantage if they didn't because the stock market went down. But put that aside for the moment, the yield on fixed income assets in those 401ks and in pension fund savings um, accounts, pension fund accounts, is going to be extremely low. So the people who were savers, particularly retirees who were banking on getting a certain level of interest on their treasuries or whatever they owned, fixed income, um, is going to be shrunk to zero and, and negative in real terms. That's going to have a big impact on American savers, particularly the, the lower income savers who, who, who tend to buy these kinds of assets and certainly retirees, which is going, which is going to be another uh, long-term tail. Gordon was referring to some of the long-term tails that uh, are going to come out of this. That is certainly uh, one uh, major one. Um, oh, thanks. Uh, we have, uh, I know you've got lots to share. Um, we, we have a few questions. So uh, if you want to uh, do a couple more points so that we can get to some of the questions. Yeah, so I was just going to make one last point. We, the, the, big, the big sufferers uh, in the long term are going to be uh, cities. Um, Amer there are a lot of, of people who are going to suffer. The last one is cities, because cities now have these large pension, unfunded pension liabilities. They have had to put out huge sums of money. The government will give them some of this money back in this new bill that they're talking about passing that they haven't passed yet. But uh, a lot of people who were in cities were leaving because of the elimination of the SALT deduction in this American cities be beforehand. I think it's going to put cities under enormous pressure. They've had to put out a lot of money. They will not have much uh, as much for their public pension funds as before. They will have uh, even more obligations now with their you know, police and their first responders and others um, that, that they're going to have to pay. Um, and people who are in cities, particularly people locked into their apartments, are going to think twice or three times as to whether they want to stay. And moreover, office buildings, um, people are used to working at home. So there a lot of companies are going to say, I don't need as much office space. And particularly for cities that depend, like New York, but many others that, that are sort of hubs, not just for work, but for entertainment, for people congregating together. There are going to be a lot of second thoughts about those because a lot of restaurants are not going to reopen. They can't make money at 50% utilization. A lot of stores are simply going to go bankrupt. That we're already seeing that, um, and a lot of uh, a lot of the big entertainment 
facilities are going to find it very difficult to reopen uh, anytime soon without, particularly without a vaccine, without some kind of immunization. So I think let's, the vulnerability of the cities is something that really hasn't, at least American cities, probably European as well, um, that vulnerability has not been fully uh, factored into to the, to the next step, the next stage. Great, thank you, Bob. Um, so uh, we have some uh, great questions uh, popping up from our audience. Um, and I will start with uh, two questions, one from Mary Brood uh, or Brooday, I'm not sure how that's pronounced, and uh, Jacob Sinar. So Mary asks, what will GDP plunge mean specifically for agriculture exports? Example, wheat, soybean, corn, etc." Uh, and Jacob uh, asks, what do you think of COVID-19 impact on developing economies in Southeast Asia? Uh, so I will uh, uh, ask Gordon to actually start with either one of these two questions, uh, see if you uh, have any thoughts on these. Well, it's, um, uh, they're a bit intertwined because uh, a number of the countries in Southeast Asia rely quite heavily on agricultural exports. Um, so. Food is, uh, demand for food is something that is uh, uh, remaining relatively stable as we go through the crisis. The problem is the disruption to global supply chains that are uh, that is affecting even food. So we're going to see, I would expect we're going to see reduced exports across the board. The magnitude of how that's going to hit agriculture is still a little bit uncertain. Uh, there we aren't seeing the cyclical downturn so much as we are just seeing the disruptive effects that COVID is having on the way in which countries engage in international commerce. Um, each country in Southeast Asia faces slightly different risks. For Thailand, we're seeing an enormous contraction in tourists. Uh, uh, Thailand gets 10 million visitors a year from China. Uh, that flow is essentially dried up. Um, Indonesia uh, relies on oil exports. Those have been hit uh, quite hard. And the region as a whole is exposed to changes in what's going on in China's economy. Round one of that was quite negative uh, to the extent that China begins to resuscitate its economy in the second part of this year, Southeast Asia may help may face a helping hand relative to what's going on in the rest of the world um, in in the second half of the year. Can I can I add just one thought? I, I, I agree with Gordon's analysis. I, I would just like to make one point about East Asia in general, including parts of Southeast Asia. One of the remarkably interesting things about this is how well many of these countries have coped in, with the virus in terms of curtailing it and controlling it and virtually stopping it. You know, South Korea, Japan had a, a reduction that went up a little bit. Now it's gone down again. Taiwan has had uh, a very impressive uh, record of, of, of dealing with this and several, and several others as well. Um, so I think that those, and, and, they're, and as a result, by taking very tough, quick actions and having been prepared because of their experience with SARS, they were able to learn a lot and they were able to be much more prepared than most other countries. The problem is, as Gordon says, that while they are better prepared and their economies now are, are, are almost normal, not quite, but almost, um, the question is, is the demand for the goods they sell. And I think that is probably going to be the thing holding them back. It's not so much the supply side for them. It's much more the demand side. And then the, the tourism point, I think, is, is very important. 
Thanks, Bob and Gordon. Um, so we have two questions from Michael Poor. Um, and the first question is, what do you think, when do you think the capital markets will accurately resemble the economic situation or are we currently at that point, i.e. some securities have returned to uh, Q4 2019 levels, uh, some beyond? Um, so that's the first question. Uh, the second question is, which economies are positioned to rebound faster than others? And are there any nations who stand to come out of this in a better position comparatively than before it? I.e. Uh, is a reorder, reshuffling of the global economic order. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say have two quick reactions to both of these. Uh, number one, trying to predict the stock market is pretty much like going to Vegas. So I, uh, I am not going to take any stabs there, and I'll leave that to Gordon and Bob. Um, but number two, uh, what economies are positioned to rebound faster than others? Uh, again, I think this is uh, just su summarizing some of the points uh, that have been made here. Um, this is really about who can sort of figure out these global supply issues uh, best. And uh, I don't know that this is about anyone coming out better than anyone else. As Bob uh, hinted at, this really has to be a coordinated approach uh, for all these countries uh, to really succeed. Um, I, I really don't uh, subscribe to the winners and losers uh, from COVID-19 uh, discussions. Uh, this can all be mm, we could all end up being losers or we can all end up uh, rebounding if we cooperate. Um, just any quick reactions from Gordon or Bob on those two questions. Gordon, you want to start out? Uh, sure. Just on, on the reordering that will happen, a, a simple metric of this that would, that would work. I mean, I agree with what uh, Renee has said in terms of unpredictability and in terms of thinking about winners and losers. There are a set of actors that were more exposed to the COVID crisis, and those are entities that are, were just more leveraged than others. Um, some of those are, are companies, some of those are states and cities, and some of those are nations uh, in their entirety. So at, as often happens in a recession, folks who bet big at, and, and hadn't seen those bets realized at given moments of time are most exposed when markets turn turn south. And we do have a set of, of, of countries in particular in Latin America that are pretty exposed right now on the debt front. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I just make a couple of additional points. I think the countries, the, the interdependence makes it uh, likely that even the countries, particularly many of the East Asian countries that, as I mentioned, have really coped very well and on the supply side are now relatively able to uh, get back to work or close enough anyway, because the number of, of cases and, and the number of fatalities has dropped dramatically. The problem is they're very heavily dependent on foreign markets like the US and the foreign markets like the US are not gonna be growing very rapidly any, anytime soon. The other is a very complicated element of the supply chain. Many of the products that they incorporate in their production systems come from other countries, components. And therefore you can have a factory that produces, is 90% self-sufficient. If 10% of what it needs to make the final widget comes from a country that is shut down, still shut down, or the workers are not going to work, that impedes its ability to, to resume normal production uh, capabilities. On the stock market, 
my view is that perhaps the uh, anticipation of a big V-shaped rebound has become too, uh, too broadly accepted. I mean, I wouldn't say it's the majority point of view, but people look at this like other financial crises. This is not like any other financial crisis we've ever had. And it's going to depend very much on how the virus uh, morphs to the extent it does or is dealt with by immunization or some kind of treatment. And um, that is still very difficult to predict. It took, we still don't have a vaccination for AIDS, don't forget. Um, so these things, there are a lot of great work, there's a lot of great work going on. The work at Oxford is phenomenal if in fact it works out the way people anticipate. There's a lot of new drugs being developed on the, uh, on the, the, the side of dealing with the disease if you've got it as opposed to immunization. But those are still, the science, having been on a couple of these boards, the science takes a while. And, that's, and markets are, I think, a little bit over-optimistic. Um, over I think the, if we're going to get a recovery, it certainly won't be a V-shaped recovery. If it's a sort of a slow U, that would be the best possible um, realistic guess on my point of view, from my point of view. And maybe a sort of a tilted L is more likely goes down like this and up gradually. Thanks, Bob and Gordon. Uh, and I would like to just do a quick time check with Wendy. Uh, uh, I think we are to close at one. Uh, we have, if that's the case, we have seven minutes and a lot of questions, a lot of great questions. Uh, so what I'll try to do is batch these a little bit and forgive me, uh, um, audience. Uh, so uh, we have a few questions on uh, just protectionism and uh, what you see as the uh, sort of uh, ramifications of all this uh, for protectionism. And along with that, there are questions about bringing manufacturing home uh, and uh, what are governments doing wrong, what are governments doing right. So uh, that's one group of questions. Uh, another group of questions is more about um, uh, uh, agriculture and food and the impact again on some uh, smaller countries uh, such as uh, Caribbean countries, uh, uh, countries that have a, a very high import bill, uh, a high food import bill. Uh, and so the specific question there comes from Dar Darren, um, in the context of possible global food supply chain disruption, would that mean that the comparative disadvantage in food production experienced by countries with very high food import bills, such as the Caribbean islands, no longer applies in the short to medium term. Should the islands start growing their own food now? Uh, so uh, that's one set of questions. Um, and the last set of questions uh, really is about employment. Uh, so some uh, specifically from a GPS student uh, concerned about their employment prospects as they graduate. Uh, others more broadly, uh, Corey Rogers asks, uh, latest unemployment figures surpass 30 million in the US, uh, the majority in food service and retail trade, with manufacturing a bit lower on the list of most affected sectors. Uh, you posited that there would be lags in the impacts of manufacturing labor from COVID-19 for a variety of reasons. My question is, when might we expect these labor impacts to fully arrive 
And in the longer term, do you expect the repatriation of supply chains to bring manufacturing jobs back to the US? Uh, so uh, why don't we spend, uh, I'll give you each five minutes to respond to those two broadly. Uh, and forgive me that I can't get to all the questions right now. Perhaps we can uh, do a bit of typing some of these questions specifically. Gordon, would you like to jump in? Sure. Um, so there's a bunch of questions related to uh, are we going to see permanent disruptions to supply chains? And I think the answer to this is, is yes and no. Um, we we achieved, uh, have achieved a certain level of globalization and appreciate the benefits that globalization brings to the uh, economies individually and the world as a whole. We're not going to completely turn our back on how exercising our comparative advantage makes us better off. Uh, what we are going to end up with is some sort of new implicit tax on trade with the rest of the world. Some of this tax will be explicit in terms of, of protectionism rearing its head. Others will be implicit. That is, we're now going to have to, we're, we're going to be monitoring trade in new ways. We're going to be reserving a certain por uh, portion of our production capacity to deal with virus-related uh, issues. And service trade and the, the role that travel plays in service trade is disrupted. Service trade facilitates a lot of trade in goods. So we're going to see a mild step back, even if the initial disruption to trade is massive. Um, globalization is here to stay. We need to find new and constructive ways uh, to manage it. On the employment side, I think you, you can think of there being three rounds of effects. Round one is this, what I meant, called it an intentional reduction in unemployment. We stay home so as not to spread the virus. Round two comes from the spending impacts that result from that voluntary reduction in employment as we spend less on goods and services. Round three comes from then rounds one and two accumulating, meaning that there are households that aren't making their mortgage payments. There are firms that aren't making their bank loan payments. There are banks that are in financial straits and are stopping to lend. And the sort of financial accelerator mechanism that we saw during the Great Recession um, that Ben Bernanke talked about in his landmark work about the Great Depression itself is likely to manifest itself here too. What that means is imagining a, a V-shaped recovery with the economy roaring back in quarter four, I would love to see that happen. It's very hard to see uh, that reality manifesting itself, given that rounds two and three are going to take six, nine, 12 months to play themselves out. Thanks, Gordon. Bob? Yeah, I would, I I would agree with Gordon on, on all the points. Um, it's certainly not going to be V-shaped. And, and econ economists are very good at modeling, but they look at old models uh, very heavily. Um, and this is entirely different from the two of 2008 crisis, um, the the uh, and 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 others, which are financial crisis. This is a this is a uh, where the government intentionally uh, told people not to work because that was the way to control the spread of the virus. And now we have uh, a lot of companies that simply are not going to survive, even with the, the the government funds. They're not going to they're not going to survive. What, what I think is going to change, and, and I, I agree that this is not a, a period of, dis, of total disengagement between the United States and China or any other group of countries. 
What I think is going to change is the diversification of supply chain management and, and very importantly, uh, a greater degree of attention to um, having proper resilience built into your storage capabilities too. This, this uh, came after the 1973 oil crisis when we realized how heavily dependent we were on the Middle East, in particular for oil, we established the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. There is, believe it or not, in the US government, a, a strategic reserve for medical equipment uh, of various sorts. It was, as we've seen, very small and very limited. Congress has appropriated $16 billion to build that up. But I think it will be a company by company decision. How do we manage our supply chains better? How do we reduce vulnerability in times of crisis? And that is going to mean strategic su supply availability of uh, strategically important uh, components or things like uh, pharmaceuticals and antibiotics and other kinds of things. Having enough of them available so that if a crisis were to occur, then the company would, would have them um, on hand. So I think a lot of the, and this, and this notion of, of vulnerability to the unexpected is going to occupy a lot of time and a lot of boardrooms uh, for, uh, for many years. And I just say at the end, um, if we're looking at this in terms of a normal uh, environment, um, like a post-financial crisis of 2008 or the others that preceded that, the uncertainty here that both of you have talked about is really whether we can control this virus and give people a high level, if not total assurance, that if they get this, there will be a treatment and that there will be some immunization, there'll be a high degree of immunization of people, so they won't get it. Other than that, the level of uncertainty is gonna hang over this economy and the global economy. And this is really a rolling crisis because while the, the numbers are curving down in some cities, New York to some, to some degree and some other cities, we still haven't seen the implications for some of the large uh, emerging economies who account for a very substantial portion of, the, of, of, of global economic growth. And, and if, if, that, if they have not reached their peak yet, and they probably haven't, this is going to hang over those economies for a long period of time. And even if we start doing better here, we're still going to see a global economy that is going to remain extremely weak. I think our economy will remain relatively weak too, although it will probably pick up depending on how we deal with the, with the virus from a medical scientific perspective and coming up with cures and immunizations. But many other countries are not going to be able to have those as quickly as perhaps America will. And I think that global, that pall over global growth is going to remain a, a serious uh, impediment to growth around the world. Great. Well, thank you, uh, Bob and Gordon. Uh, we're at 102. Uh, so uh, unfortunately, we can't get to all the wonderful questions in the chat. Um, I think we'll either have to do a part two or, uh, <laughs> or try to answer these uh, by typing. Um, but with this, uh, thank you again. And thanks, Wendy, for organizing. I'm going to turn it back over to Wendy. All right. Thank you so much, all. Um, just share my screen here. On behalf of everyone on the line, please allow me to thank our panelists 
Renee, Gordon, Bob, this was just fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, before you go, just know that next week we'll be discussing healthcare and biomedical research impacts of COVID-19. We've got two of our GPS faculty members and one of our uh, International Advisory Board members also joining us. So we hope you will as well. Thank you, everyone, and we look forward to seeing you next week. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.